Well, good morning. We're trying to use technology a little bit. Don't you love it when strings break on guitars, Daniel? Just it's so humbling, isn't it? You're just helpless. And I actually think it's a very fitting illustration to what we want to look at as we get ready to participate in the table of the Lord. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to go back with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to continue looking at verses 8 to 17. And um, I have to tell you, I am just full to overflowing with God's Word. I just love this passage. It's just so filled with stuff from God. And I uh, want to just pick that up and we'll kind of use this as a segue into the table of the Lord together. But we're looking at the idea that we are the church. We are the church. And I want to move from the theoretical to the practical and asking ourselves, well, then how do the people of God live life? What does that look like in reality? Do we really believe God is, (laughs) that he exists, that he exists? And here's the crazy thing. When God created, he didn't create because he was either bored or lonely or felt unloved, and so he needed to build and create a whole bunch of people so that we could, he could get his ego boosted or his, his self-esteem built up. No, even the act of creation was just an unmitigated act of love. But do we l- believe that about God, that he exists and that he is awesome? So let me ask you, huh, how amazing is God to you? I mean, really, how amazing is God? We, I got to go and order my barbecue. That's why I saw that sign at Home Depot this week, right? 21 days till spring. And she was ordering it and filling it all in. And she was telling me the estimated date of delivery and all this. And I was just overcome with a sense of, my barbecue is coming. And as I was sitting in the car, I was like, Steve... You're excited about a steel flaming device. (laughs) How awesome is God? How amazing is God's grace? And when I say that, move beyond just the spiritual jargon. Like, it's this language that we speak. Oh, it's just amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No, to amazing grace. How sweet the sound that God would save a wretch like me. When was the last time you either burst into praise, the last time you, your lip quivered and your eyes watered up even as guys, when you were left speechless at how undeserving we are and yet how amazing God's grace flows. Because how you answer that, how you really wrestle with that, will help you understand and answer the question, how do we as a people live life? 
How do you go through the affairs of life? Daniel prayed about it in his prayer. Regardless of your circumstances, and in a group as large as this, it is represented of a massive amount of ups and downs in the last seven days. How amazing is God's grace? Where does your mind go first when you are faced with hardship? Or when you get that day or that week or that month or that year of ease? When everything just seems to go right? Where is God or how amazing is God's grace when you face comfort or pain? When you are dealing with love or rejection? How do you deal or how amazing is God's grace when you're faced with your success or your failures? With marriage, with kids, with relationships, or the lack of marriage, kids, or relationships? How amazing is God's grace when it comes to money or the lack of money? When it comes to vacations or if you're here going, I don't know when I took a vacation last. Is God's grace still amazing? I remember one of the most poignant things. God has blessed me so much with individuals in my life that totally and radically left an imprint on my, both my imagination and the way my life unfolded. And one of them was a dear saint that I grew up with in Harbor Grace. This lady had everything. I mean, guys, I could not write a book for what went wrong in this woman's life. And she was the most faithful person. And she played the organ at the little church that my parents started. And we were faithful there. And this woman was just faithful, faithful, faithful. And everything went wrong. Family fell apart. Finances fell apart. Everything fell apart. And then on top of that, she got cancer. And it was a long, long fight and bout with cancer. And I remember going out as a group of teens and gathering in her, hotel, her hospital room and we sang for her and read scripture for her. And then at the end of it, everybody left and, and this dear lady asked me to stay. And a lot of the bad decisions of life for me lay ahead of me. But she grabbed me and she pulled me in close. And she said, Stephen, I just want you to remember in all you do, glorify God and give God the glory in all you do and I have never forgotten that phrase two days later she died I went to be with her Savior some people would look at her life and say what a waste she's one of my spiritual heroes To me, she is one of those unsung heroes of the faith. And so this is the thing. For for this lady, God's grace was absolutely amazing, and it was separate from circumstances. See, isn't it easy to say God's grace is amazing when the car is new and works, when the kids are well-behaved, when the house is paid for, the RSPs are topped up, the vacation is booked, and everything's going right? But how amazing is God's grace when you're laid off? Or there's the unexpected bill. Or the child that wanders away. Or the marriage that feels like it's about to dissolve. Or everybody just misunderstands you. Is God's amazing grace still amazing then? And how often and how much time do we spend instead of dwelling on God's amazing grace, we spend it thinking about ourselves, what we want, what will make me happy. Why doesn't everyone live the way I want to live? And I have to share with you, I am wrecked by two people in my life. One is my father-in-law, 
My father-in-law once told me when I was making an excuse for why I didn't do something for him, he grabbed me one day and he took me out to the shed. Um, I don't know if that was for fear or intimidation or what, but here's what he said to me. He said, Stephen, do you know what an excuse is? I said, no. He said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And now I'm wrecked. Because now I can, I, I, even when I try to make excuses, I feel like I'm lying. Just instead of owning, I failed. We try to make excuses. Well, then I had this guy, and if you were in your late 30s, early 40s, or above, and you're a hockey fan, I got the privilege of meeting a guy named Bob Froze. And Bob Froze was a goaltender for the Philadelphia Flyers in the 80s. He played against uh, when the Philadelphia Flyers and the Edmonton Oilers were that great hockey dynasty. And they played against each other in that Stanley Cup. And he, uh, God gloriously saved him. He's a pastor outside of Buffalo. And he came to our church and preached for us. In fact, I'm hoping to have Bob maybe come down here and speak to this church at some point. But he has just wonderful stories of what it was like to be a hockey player. And he talks about that Stanley Cup final in which Edmonton beat them four games to one because he said, we won the first game. And he said, Wayne Gretzky then had a meeting and said, all right, nobody else is allowed to touch the puck. And he said, and then we watched for four games while they just beat us. But Bob has been gloriously saved, and he came to my office, and I wanted to impress him as a young pastor, and I had him in there, and I was talking about ministry, and I was saying, oh, Bob, ministry is so tough and so hard, and if this brother would just do what he should do, and if this sister would just listen, and if that couple would just do more, God would do a work here in Charlottetown, and he sat and listened, and I could see this little grin curl up on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, Steve, you know what frustration is, right? And I knew then, uh uh-oh, I'm dead in the water. He was coached by Mike Keenan, which is, I think, one of the hardest coaches to be coached by. And he looked at me and he said this, frustration is when other people won't live up to your expectations. Frustration is when other people won't live up to your expectations. And he nailed me. Here I was trying to be all spiritual and pastoral, and he totally out at me that, Steve, you know what your problem is? You believe everybody else should live up to your expectations, and you think that that's justified because you have what you think are religious expectations for everybody. Instead of believing that God is merciful and patient and kind and wanting the gospel to permeate people's lives and praying for them and patiently working with them and noting it, that it's a privilege to do so because God's grace is amazing. And this is how the people of God live life. So here's my question as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. What is legalism? What is legalism? You've heard me talk about it a lot in my six weeks. And I need to tell you in full disclosure, I am a recovering legalist. I go to L.A. meetings regularly. Legalism Anonymous. I go and I get together with others and I stand up and I go, Hey, my name is Steve. I've been a recovering legalist now for about 20 years, all right? I don't want legalism in my life anymore, but yet I'm surprised at how easily it creeps back into my life. But let me break this down for you. Legalism is the excessive or improper use of the law. And legalism can take different forms. One of them is this. The first form of legalism is where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. So in other words, someone thinks, okay, give me a list of things I need to do. I will do my best to do this, and therefore I deserve salvation. I deserve to live forever in the kingdom. You want a great example of that? You've got the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. 
He goes to Jesus, right? What must I do to be saved? Have you ever noticed that? People think good of him in that. You ever notice what his motive is? He doesn't want Jesus. He, want, he wants God's stuff. How do I get to live forever? He doesn't go and say, Lord, how do I have you? He was, how do I live forever? And Jesus says, all the, right? He says, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't dishonor your mom and dad, keep the Sabbath. And what does he do? His chest comes out and he goes, all these have I kept from my youth. And then God says, well, actually, I love Mark 9, 10 on this because Mark says Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack, go sell everything that you own, give it to the poor and come follow me. And what happens to the rich young ruler then? He goes his way and leaves sad. Why? Because he had great possessions. Because the first four commandments have to deal with, thou shalt not have any other God before you. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, right? All these, these are the commandments. Jesus outs him that you think you can earn your way. You can work your way to a rightness with God. That's one form of legalism. Second form is this. When a person keeps the law in order to maintain his or her salvation. Now, because I think I can run faster scared than any of you mad, let me say this one is a problem in this room. That definition is a problem in this room. Where we think, whether overtly or covertly, somehow I've got to keep Jesus happy with me. Somehow I've got to earn his favor. Somehow I've got to stay on his good side. Somehow I've got to figure out the formula of prayer or the five points to a good marriage or the six steps to great parenting or the three steps to a wonderful devotional life. We have taken everything about Christianity and put it into steps, methodology, or ideas. And it's yet the entire thing is a relationship. Jesus doesn't just forgive you of your sin and put you at zero. Jesus forgives you of your sin, past, present, and future. He doesn't just forgive you of all your sin. Then he gives you all of his righteousness. That's this $50 theological word called imputed righteousness. It basically means Jesus took all of his perfection and deposited into our account. See, it's one thing, when I was at college and university, and I would call dad and say, dad, your son, I'm broke, love you. And then sometimes dad would go, son, so sad, too bad, your dad, I love you too. All right? But often, dad wouldn't just pay off my bills, he would put money in my bank account. So it wasn't just that my bills got paid, then I got to the good. And then I actually spent upon my Father's goodness. When you and I are redeemed by Christ, when you and I go to Jesus and just own our junk, we admit we can't, we admit we won't, we admit we, we don't deserve, and Jesus doesn't just say, I will forgive you of anything and everything you have done wrong, past, present, and future. He also says, I will credit to you in front of God your Father all of my righteousness. That's why Isaiah would say it. He washes us white in the blood of the Lamb. Though your sins be as scarlet, He shall wash you white as wool. 
So when God the Father looks at us, if we are his sons and daughters, God never looks at me and says, now how's the tally? He looks at me and says, Stephen is a son of God because of Jesus Christ. End of story. Now let me say again, how amazing is God's grace? Now there's a third form of legalism, and we struggle with that here too. When a Christian judges other Christians for not keeping certain codes of conduct that he thinks need to be observed. That's another way that we do that. So this is the game of comparative righteousness, which I find absolutely ironic that Christians who say they have come to an amazing God, found amazing grace, then think, now it's my right or my calling to tell everybody how I live better than they do. How my spirituality is inferior, or sorry, superior to their spirituality. Instead of, where's the attitude of outdo one another in showing honor? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. See, it is easy, I find it very easy to rejoice with those who rejoice. I really do. When someone calls me and says something went amazingly well, uh, we got a call uh, over the last two weeks of someone that uh, found out they were pregnant. And it was amazing. And it was easy. But then we got a call Monday this past week of a dear friend of Debbie and I. This man taught me everything I know about music. And I got a phone call and my friend died. And I had to go to the funeral this week. It is really not easy. On Wednesday night, we went down to the funeral home at, at, at the, down on Hamilton Avenue, and I walk into the room, and I see people that I haven't seen in 20 years or 23 years, and I walk up, and, and you literally, I stood there, and it was so surreal because the people in front of me, I have known them all of my life, but I haven't seen them in 20 or 23 years. So it's like, I know you, but I don't know you. It was almost like an out-of-body experience because the person in front of me, I have no idea who they are. But if we talk about the past, I know exactly who they are. And to try and articulate a sense of, of love and, and a sense of sympathy and a sense of weeping with those who weep, it was so difficult. And finally, my friend Dave and I, we, we, we embraced each other. We shook hands, which was weird. And we looked at each other like, we're supposed to be better friends than this. And then we did that weird, awkward man hug, you know, where you kind of lean in, but you don't touch bellies. You just touch shoulders and you do the double or triple slap, depending on how close you feel to each other. Um, and then we kind of pulled back. And, and we looked at each other and we started to have this con- conversation. I could hear the words, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry and I loved your dad. And then, I fa- I, then I just stopped. And I said, Dave, I haven't got a clue how you feel. But I loved your dad and I love you. And I just ache and I don't even know how to feel. And I don't even know how you feel. And then he gave me a real hug. And said, that's all you needed to say. It's just hard, isn't it, though? It's easy to rejoice. It's hard to weep with those who weep. But are we willing to do this? How many of us right here and right now have a language of the gospel, but we live a life of the law? We think in terms of how have I lived? How are others living? Who's behind me? Who's ahead of me? We think in terms of what am I doing well versus what am I not doing well? And then we begin a series of justifying thoughts to get us through. And the problem when you approach the law this way, 
when you think in terms of legalism, how do I earn my way in? Or how do I keep myself in? Or how do I compare myself with others? Here's where you're going to end up. And I promise you this as we come to the table of the Lord. You can only end up in one of two places. Either, number one, you are going to end up defeated. You will be completely defeated. You'll be demoralized. You'll be embarrassed. You'll say, why bother? You have tried to be good. You have tried to have a good marriage. You've tried to be a good dad or a good mom. You've tried to be a good son or a good daughter. You've tried to be a good church member. You've tried to give enough. You've, and it just weighs you down. And yet you know you've screwed up, you've screwed up, you've screwed up, you've screwed up. And you just go, you know what? I can't. Why bother? And you just become demoralized or embarrassed. And then you hate, you almost resent coming to church. You know you should be there, but you hate coming there because you know then you've got to smile. And then you've got to pretend. And then you've got to act like you've got it all together. And that you got to be petrified because you can't be too honest. And then you're looking over your shoulder and you're constantly thinking in terms of comparisons. And then you're done. If you want proof of it, look no further than Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve fall, what's the first thing they do? They run and hide. You'll always know if you're not responding to sin right. Because if you're responding to sin right, you'll either run to Jesus in the church... Or if you're responding to sin wrong, you'll run from Jesus and the church. Always. Or you're on the other side of it. If you're not defeated by trying to maintain the law, you'll become delusional. You become delusional. And this is where you think you're okay. This is where you've got it. You think, I've got it together. Oh, I might not be perfect, but you know, I try. Right? You have a right to speak into people's lives because at least you're trying, or at least you believe you're trying better than anybody else is. You know, you feel bad for those who have fallen away. You have verses and you've got spiritual language for other people's marriages, other people's wayward kids. You think if only your spouse would get it, then everything would be okay because obviously you're not the problem because you're trying hard. You think if only my mom and dad would get it, then get on board. Or if the church member would confess their pride, we would be okay together. You see, let me just say this. The problem with being a Pharisee Here's the problem with being a Pharisee. You can always see another one, but you never see it as yourself. If you are really good at spotting Pharisees everywhere else and you're never one, you probably are the leader. And this is why I'm a recovering legalist. And so that's why I want us to look again very quickly as we come to the table of the Lord, 1 Timothy 1. Now listen to what Paul says. He's writing to Timothy He's writing about this group that have gotten legalistic. They're not content with the gospel. They think now they've got to take the law and do something with it. So he says to Timothy, he goes, Now we know, Tim, that the law is good. The law is good. If one use it lawfully. Now, Timothy, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. And by the way, for him to even say that means that Paul believes somebody can be just. For him to say the law isn't laid down for the just must mean that Paul believes some are just. So he says, if the law is not laid down for the just, those who have been justified by God, those who are called perfect in Christ, those who have their sins forgiven, those who are at peace with God, the law is not for them, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers. Timothy, the law is for the sexually immoral. 
And that includes everybody who has done it here, here, or there. Okay? Sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. Before you dwell on that one and think, okay, now I'm out. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. Enslavers. Liars. Perjurers. And if you still think, not guilty, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Not only is it a violation of the law to do something wrong... It's a violation of the law to even do something right for the wrong reasons. That's why Paul will say other places he had to confess his righteousness, not just his unrighteousness. If you want an example of that, we had a dear couple in, in Nova Scotia that had been born and raised in Prince Edward Island. They had made a lot of money and they were now retired down in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. And they donated a million dollars to the local hospital in Charlottetown. And so the Guardian newspaper, which is Charlottetown's city paper, was there. And there's a cup, picture of the couple and big smiles on their faces and all of the brass around them from the hospital. And they show them with the check for the million dollars and they're talking to them. And they're like, and there's this massive interview of them. And they're saying, yes, and we did this and we did this. And they said, why did you do this? Why did you give a million dollars to the QEH? And here's what the man says. Because it made us feel good. You know what? That's sin to a holy God. They did something good for a selfish reason. Still misses the mark of God's holiness. Now, am I thankful the guy did it? Absolutely. Will it benefit? But I want you to understand the standard of the law. This is why Paul is saying the law is good if you use it lawfully. But understand, this is what the law is for. Now, if you want to know your grammar, look at your, your Bible. In verse 8, I want you to go, Now we know that the law is good. And if you put a mark there and go all the way down to verse 11, that's actually the sentence. We know the law is good. Here's now, here, let me define it. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's his thought. The law is good in accordance with the gospel. That's, that's the definition. It's not the law is good because we need to have rules and we need to have standards. The law is good in accordance with the gospel with which I've been entrusted. Now watch Paul, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. Now notice what he, he doesn't say. I thank him because I decided to turn over a new leaf. I thank him because I tried harder. I thanked him because I read more. No, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. In other words... Even the ability to do this, to think this way, has been given to me by, look, Christ Jesus, personal pronoun, our Lord. Our Lord. Why? Because He judged me faithful. I can't wait to tell you what that means next week. Appointing me to His service. Now notice Paul. Think about what he's just said in verses 9 and 10. Now you get to verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And here's what this grace that overflowed for me was with the faith 
and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is what the substance was. This is where Paul is saying, here's what Christ gave me. When I received mercy, this is what I got. I got faith and love in Christ Jesus. And he says, oh, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance. The greatest eight or nine words the world has ever heard. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, here's how you know how the gospel affected Paul. Because he doesn't do it all preachery. And go, the Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom all of you are. He goes, of whom I am the foremost. Tim, you want to know who the worst sinner is? Me. You know when I said ungodly and profane, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Uh, you know all those guys? I'm worse than them. I'm worse than them of whom I am the foremost. And look at what he says, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Here's the reason why God saved me, Timothy. Here's what I want you to remind the Ephesians. Calvary, this is what we need to know as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. Here is why God saved me. That in me, as the foremost, in me, I am the worst of sinners. Look up in the Webster's Dictionary. Pagan, reprobate, dirtbag, Whatever one word or adjective you want to, you'll see Paul's picture there. All right? He says that I receive mercy, that in me the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Patience there means his long suffering, his willingness to let his plan work itself out. Notice why. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know what Paul is basically saying? Paul, Timothy, listen. If God will save me, this is why he did it. Because he wants everybody to know that he can save and will save anybody in the world. Now imagine if that was your testimony. Now, here's what I want you to see as we come to the table of the Lord. Because legalism is you try and earn your way in, you try and keep yourself in, or you get so wrapped up in comparisons, and either you end up defeated or you end up delusional. But if you understand this gospel, if you understand, if you can, oh no, I am the worst of sinners. I'm the problem, it's not my wife. I'm the problem, it's not my parents. I'm the problem, it's not my kids. I'm the problem, it's not my singleness. I'm the problem, it's not my, my, my barrenness. I'm the problem, it's not my lack of money or because I have too much money. I'm the problem because I wasn't brought up in a, a faith-based home or I was raised in a, in a non-faith-based home. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. See, listen to me. We're not sinners because we've done things bad. I wasn't born good. I love these three beautiful little girls and all the ones that are around. But they weren't born good and became bad. Now, how about this for a baby dedication? I remember a baby dedication where the pastor stood up, took the little fella, and it was his son. Stands up in front of the church and he says, I want to introduce my son to you. He is an enemy of God. Now, that's a good way to get the warm and fuzzy set of baby dedication, right? No, no, listen. You're not born good and become bad. We do things wrong because we're born bad. My, my little fellow right now that is in my life, his name's Harrison. It's Shelby's little fellow. He's like a grandson to Debbie and I. We love that little fellow. And he's a selfish little imp. 
and he's only months old. No one will ever teach him how to lie. No one will ever teach him how to get angry. No one will ever teach him how to be selfish. No one will ever teach him any of those things. He is that way because he's a sinner. We don't sin and become sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And when you can own it, when you can own it, the difference between the rich young ruler and the woman at the well, you remember the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman, and she comes to the well and Jesus talks to her and she's unmasked. She's a Samaritan. Jesus breaks all the laws by talking to her and offering to help her and all these things. And he says, if you will drink from the water I offer you, you'll never thirst again. And she says, you don't know who you're talking to. And she goes, by the way, I'm not living with my husband. And he goes, no, you're right to say you're not living with your husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And you know what? She, she doesn't go, well, you don't understand. Let me tell you, Jesus, my life story. If you only stood how hard, the first one beat me, the second one cheated on me, the third one left me, the fourth one. She doesn't go into all her excuses. She doesn't say, well, and I was poor and destitute, and this guy was a good friend to me, and he said he would take me, and he, she doesn't. She goes, yeah, you're right. If you read the rest of the passage, when she goes back to the, the, the city, and she goes to all of her friends, she goes, I met a man. And he said he's the Christ, and he must be. You know what her theology was? He told me all that I have ever done. That was her testimony. And they all go out to Jesus, and Samaria is revived. You come to the end of the passage in John 4, and the narrative of the apostle John, the Jew, who when the apostles show up go, what's Jesus doing talking to her? He's ticked because we didn't get the bread. We didn't get it fast enough. Poor fellows were never getting it. Her testimony is this. John, the Jewish guy, puts in the God's Word on the inspiration of Scripture and it says, and many believed her testimony that he told her all she ever did. That's her testimony. That's her testimony. She just owned her junk in John or Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is, or chapter 8. The, the Gentile woman that goes and wants healing, and Jesus says, I can't take the food that belongs to the house of Israel and give it to dogs. And she never says, you racist, misogynistic chauvinist. She goes, yeah, yeah, you're right, Lord. But even the dogs get crumbs when they fall from the table. And Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. You know what it was? She was willing to admit, I don't deserve because I am a wretch. See, that's what makes amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For too many of us, we come to this table and go, Lord, I thank you that you saved. Well, I'm not a good guy, but I'm glad I'm not as bad as him or her. You know, Lord, I needed saving, but I'm glad you didn't have to pour out as much grace on me as you had to pour out on them. Like I'm bad, but I'm not really bad. And you see this because when you talk to each other, watch this happen in life groups. When you, start to, when you start to get honest and you start to get transparent and you start to take chances, so you whip out a failure and you go, yeah, this week I did this. And then you look at people and go, wait a second, that's really honest. Well, it wasn't really that bad. You'll see it. You'll do it. It happens in tetracolor. And this is what Paul is saying. When you really get the gospel, when you are free from the wrong use of the law, you can own your junk. You can go to Jesus and say, listen, you know why God saved me? Because he wants this whole city of St. John to know. If God can save me, 
He can save anybody. So whether you meet the guy at work that's addicted, has a closet addiction to prescription medication, or the guy that's up to his neck in debt, or the woman who's having the emotional fair at the office, or the neighbor who's living with her boyfriend and had two kids from two different dudes, or the guy that wears the three-piece suit and looks like he's got it all together and he just drives a nice car and life is good, you can say to every one of them, if God can save me, he can save you. And that's what this table's all about. And then Paul says, he can't help it. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I've run out of time, and we haven't even gotten into this thing yet. How deep is God's word? Guys, if I, I pray, if God does nothing with us together in our ministry together, that you will just see how wonderfully, magnificently deep God's Word is. So here's the thing. Are you defeated or are you delusional? Are you here this morning going, you know what? Steve, I don't even bother anymore. I am what I am. I can't even try. I don't even want to bother because the moment I do, I'm going to fail. You don't get the gospel. Because Jesus says, not only have I paid it all, I've given you the strength to overcome. See, the presence of sin is in our lives still if you're a Christian, but the power of sin no longer has control over you. Or are you delusional? I got this. I got figured out. Well, listen, not perfect, but I'm on my way. You know, and if someone gets two person, now listen. Look, I don't have it all together, but if you talk to her... I don't know if I got it all together, but if you looked at their marriage, I don't know if I got it all together parenting, but look at their kids. I was at this funeral on Friday, and all these kids are playing in this gym, and everybody's eating. This one kid goes by me, and we, me and this other guy are looking at it, and the other fellow looks at me and goes, who owns the kid, the spaz kid? Because he was walking along, and he was going, Rah! and then he walked out. And so my, the guy says to me, he goes, who, who, who spazzy kid is that? And, and, you know, when I laughed, I went, oh, I don't know, but I know he's not one of mine. <laughs> now, that's funny, and we laugh at it, but isn't that indicative of the way we actually live life? Instead of rejoicing in the gospel. Because here's the thing, what if that kid was my kid? Would I have owned it? And said, you know what, he's still working on me and him. Because he learned it from me. That's what makes this table rich. Are you defeated or are you delusional? Then you need this table. The law will not save you. The law will tell you you need to be saved. That's what we're going to look at next week. I will break down the law for you and then compare it to the gospel. And it's utterly and magnificently amazing. But we get a prequel of it right here. Let's pray and then let's break bread together before we go home this afternoon. Father God... I thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, I'm so thankful just for the opportunity to, to read it carefully and to pause over it and to, to Lord, expound it. it. It reminds me this morning of what it must have been like for Ezra when the people of Israel gathered and they hadn't heard the word and, and the word was read and then the word was explained and there was children there and young people there and older people there and families and singles and people that had just discovered the word of God brand new and people that had 
longed for the word of God, and yet there it was read and explained. I pray, Father, for us as we come to this table to celebrate the gospel. Lord, the law, it is a hammer. Father, it shows us your magnificent. It displays your holiness and it declares to a whole world that we don't measure up. And if there was only the law, we would be the most wretched and miserable of people. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom here in this world we are representative of all that is bad. And yet we are also a shining outrageously loud testimony that if God would save us, He'll save anybody. If God would use us, He'll use anybody. If God would work in our lives and change us, He'll work in anybody's life to change them. So from our young people here, I pray that they will never ever think because they're in church, they've got it together. I pray that they will see, acted out in living color by their parents and by the people of this church, that they need Jesus in their life every single day. And that, Lord, we do as well. As we come to this table, may we rejoice. May we not think this is a tag on, an end, a little little blip on the screen of what we do on the first of the month. No, Lord, this is meant to revive us, to encourage us, to, to Father, marinate us in the glories of the gospel. And may you get all the praise in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.